Well, if you haven't been with us for a few weeks on Sunday evenings, we're in the midst of a series on the book of the second book of the Kings, two Kings, looking at the life and the works and the miracles of the prophet Elisha. Where are we? Well, we're in Israel and um, we'll have a, a map. We had a map this morning. We'll have a, a little map this evening just to show us where we are. We're in Israel, but it's been divided into two kingdoms, the northern one, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the kings of Israel have generally been wicked men with no thought of God. We had Ahab. We have Joram introduced in chapter three and his, his testimony, if you like, or his, what they write about him is that he was an evil man, although not quite as evil as his father. It's probably not what, really what you want on your gravestone, is it? And so the prophet Elisha, like Elijah before him, has been given a ministry to stand against this evil and to proclaim the great message of God again in the land. And last week, Steve took us through chapter five. We saw how God used Elisha in healing Naaman, the Syrian commander from his leprosy. We saw Gehazi, Elisha's servant, trying to profit from this by taking money from Naaman and lying more than once. And we saw, didn't we, how his sin was coldly exposed by Elisha and how Gehazi walked away carrying the leprosy from which Naaman had been healed. God's judgment was severe, wasn't it, on Gehazi because what he'd done was dishonoring to God. And so tonight we come to chapter six and we've two more miracles uh, to look at and to deal with. The 12th and 13th, I think, of Elisha, you can trace back and follow them through. Firstly, we have this account of the floating ax head. And secondly, this account of the Syrian army pursuing Elisha. But we see how God displays his protection of Elisha and his servant. I wonder if you look at accounts like these, particularly of the floating axe head, and you think this story would just sound crazy, wouldn't it, to people outside of this room, outside of the church. But we said, Pastor said a couple of weeks ago that we feel no need to be um, embarrassed or tentative about passages like this in God's word. The God of creation has no need to apologize to us for these things because he is the God of creation, and he is God. And what we see here in these two accounts is God demonstrating his mighty power in different ways. God's provision for his people, God's protection for his people, and how God answers their prayers, particularly in times of difficulty. Here tonight, we see God dealing with the needs of his people no matter how small they might seem. And that's something which can encourage us, I hope. In the first account, we see God dealing with the issue of someone losing something, something that's important to them and precious to them, wondering how on earth he's gonna make restitution and pay back what he owes. And in the second account, we see God dealing with a young we take it a young believer, a young Christian who is scared of the opposition that they can see before him. Both relevant issues, aren't they? 
But it's a great reminder that, that as we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, we're reminded that he that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So let's come then. We'll split this our time in two. We'll deal with this first account in verses 1 to 7 of the axe head that floats. So come with me and please have your Bible open at chapter 6 and verse 1. A light in dark times is what we seem to have here. Because we're introduced to this, this group called the Sons of the Prophets or this faithful band of prophets. And what we're really doing here is we're dropping in on a training school for young preachers. Something like what perhaps Keith has spent a long time doing in Kenya or what Jaykanth is doing in Sri Lanka. Clearly it's something that Elisha is spending a long time doing, isn't it? There are schools for these prophets at Gilgal and there's a school at Bethel and there's a school at Jericho. And it seems like Elisha is acting as a kind of superintendent or a leader to them. Probably we think that this is the school, this, this group here is at a place called Gilgal. But the times are tough. Spiritually, these are dark days, aren't they? For this northern kingdom of Israel. The king, Joram, who we meet in chapter 3, we've said he is not a good man. He's an evil man, not quite as evil as his father, but he's an evil man. Idolatry is prevalent in the land. The word of God is neglected by so many. Perhaps you sit and you think, are these days so different to the days we're in now? But what's so encouraging, and what I want you not to miss, is that even in these dark days, and even in these difficult days, this work is growing. This little work is growing. Even with the opposition, even though perhaps it isn't that long since Elijah almost gave it all up on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings chapter 19, when he said, it's all over. I'm the only one left. I can't deal with this opposition. Well, it wasn't all over, was it? Because this little band of prophets has been preserved and has been kept and is growing under Elisha's lead. You see then, as now, God preserves his people, doesn't he? God preserves his people even in dark and hard times. It's been said before that perhaps some of the dictators or some of the communist leaders who tried to stamp out the Christian church in the countries that they were leading, perhaps they would have been better not to persecute them, but just simply to make life as easy as possible for Christians and for the church. Just relax everything. Just make them comfortable and let them have their ease and perhaps watch the church decline. Because the proof of history shows us that the church can grow and the church can flourish and people can be strengthened under pressure and in hard times. Who knows whether that may affect us more so in our lifetimes and in, our, in the generations to come, who knows? Well, here we have this group of, of prophets or preachers and they need a bigger accommodation because the work of God isn't going to be stamped out. The work the, or this work of God is growing. The place, they say to Elijah, this place is too small for us. We need somewhere bigger. So verse two, 
Let's see how they make this plan to go down to the River Jordan. And they, cut, they say, we'll cut down trees and we'll build this thing ourselves. I like their attitude to work, don't you? They bring this plan to Elisha. Look, we've got this need. We need somewhere a bit bigger, but we'll do it ourselves. We're not scared of the work. We're not going to go crazy spending whatever profit funds they had on expensive design or they say expensive woods like cedarwood or marble gilded palaces. They don't need to do that. They don't want to be like the world, as it were, with something flashy or expensive. It's a good reminder, isn't it, that we don't need to be like the world either, do we? They're happy with something basic and something humble, something that meets their needs, and they'll get on with it, they say to Elijah, Elisha themselves. But see how concerned they are that Elisha goes with them in verse 3. They want him to go with them. Now, it's not every student who would want their teacher with them wherever they go, is it? But Elisha, look how precious he is to them. He brings them the word of God, and they want that with them. Even though this task is, is a task of work, to go out and work. They want Elisha there. They, they want perhaps his approval on this project. I wonder perhaps as we go out into whatever it is that we do this week, as we go into work maybe, as we go into school, as we go into university, we would be better served if we had the attitude that we will take the word of God with us wherever we will go that we would be conscious of looking for God's favour as we do whatever we do this week, serving, studying, in school, in the home, that we remember that God is with us and that we must do all we do to honour and praise his name. Because you can read easily in the Old Testament how the children of Israel dis disobeyed God's commands often, can't we? And you can see how God says to them, if that's how you're going to behave, if that's how you're going to act, then I will not be with you. But these men wanted Elisha with them. They wanted him there every step of the way and see in verse four that Eli Elisha says, okay, I'll come with you. And he went with them. He didn't consider that this building project was not worthy of his time. He's there. He's with them. He's supporting them in this work. And so here's this little group down at the River Jordan, ready to cut down some trees. And we're told that one man, he swings his axe. This will look, look like a bad golf shot, but he swings his axe and he cuts or tries to cut. And as he swings the head of the axe, we have this picture that it fl flies away and lands splash in the water of the River Jordan. What's his first reaction? Oh no, he says, that wasn't mine. It was borrowed. Sounds like a desperate cry, doesn't it? The word is actually begged. He'd had to beg for it. He'd had to really plead to get this thing. And today, well, you might think, what's the problem? Just go down to B&Q or somewhere and buy another one. But it was a problem because it was expensive. Iron would have been expensive then. Tools like this, not everybody had. Not everybody could afford. And they say, 
a couple of the commentators say that losing an axe like this would be like you or me borrowing a friend's car, crashing it, and then realising that you had no insurance to pay for it. It was a big deal. It wasn't just £10 to, to go and replace. Or perhaps this man is concerned that he'll be letting down a friend. Perhaps he thinks it will be a bad witness for one of God's servants to borrow something and not to be able to return it. Yeah, we should think about that, shouldn't we? Perhaps he's thinking of the impact on this work because here he is as part of the building team and now his tool to do the work is gone. So here is this preacher, this perhaps this young student, probably very poor, who'd begged and borrowed the loan of this axe. He couldn't afford his own, we, we suppose. And there it is at the bottom of the River Jordan. What's he going to do? Well, I've got a toolbox at home with some screwdrivers and a couple of hammers and a few other things in, but if I didn't have them, I'm honest enough to know my life wouldn't be much different and my house wouldn't be much different. Really? But see how Elisha responds now to the call of this man. Master, help me! It was quite a few years ago that Ruth and I went to stay with my sister, Helen, who at that time lived in Switzerland in a place called Neon. It was on Lake Geneva. And one day she decided, this was before we had the children, that it would be a good thing to do to go down to the lake and to have a swim in it. Well, swimming in lakes in Switzerland, I, looking back now, I realise is cold. And she decided that it would be a good thing to do. There was a platform in the middle of the lake and she said, well, swim to that. So we did. Well, it was a long way. It was very cold. And after a while, I started to feel not good and unwell. And I had to be, uh, I, did, I thought actually I wasn't going to make it. And a friend of mine, Andrew Pope, and some, some of you know the family, he was there and he got me round the neck and he dragged me back to the shore of the lake. And as I was kind of lying there getting my breath back at the, at the side of the lake, I realised that my wedding ring had gone. It was at the bottom of Lake Geneva somewhere. Well, my brother-in-law, Phil, who some of you know, he went off, he got some goggles, dived back in the lake, and a few minutes later, up, he popped with his hand, with my wedding ring in his hand. So that is the ring, and that is a true story. But the rescue here is different, isn't it? Why? Going into the water wasn't an option, uh, I don't know. Perhaps too deep or too muddy or the water would run too fast or perhaps Elisha just reacts quicker. But the miracle is about to take place and Elisha takes a stick and he puts a stick towards the water and the iron floats to the surface. God's man does this work and we noticed, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago how Elisha is using ordinary things in these miracles that he does. He used salt in chapter two. He used flour, didn't he, in chapter four uh, with the story of the poisonous um, stew. Naaman washed in the mud of the river Jordan. Why? Well, so that we may see that the power isn't in these things. The real power in these miracles isn't these objects, but it's God. The power and the work is done by God. The prophet stretches out his hand and the iron floats. Can't do that, can it? But it does. 
when our children went to the Holiday Bible Club at Woodvale a couple of summers ago, they came back singing a little chorus, he must be God because he did that. And the idols couldn't do that, could they? The idols and the wicked king of Israel couldn't do this thing. The power is God's and the glory therefore must be God's also. If you go into the gospels, you see how the Lord Jesus uses ordinary things too, sometimes. Remember how a young lad came to him with five small loaves of bread and two small fish to feed 5,000 people and more. Remember how Jesus put mud on a man's eyes to have his sight restored to him. The glory and the power wasn't in the fish or the bread or the mud. The power belonged to God and was worked through his son. And so we're reminded, aren't we, as we come to something like this, that God doesn't work according to human standards. The power and the glory is God's and his ways are not always our ways. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of that, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says that the message of the cross is foolishness, particularly to those who are perishing. He reminds us again, doesn't he, that God uses the foolish and the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are big in the world's eyes. Why? Well, so that we may not boast before him. In Isaiah chapter 55, God reminds us that my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are my ways your ways. God does things sometimes that completely swim against our expectations, doesn't he? The iron sank, but the cry of that poor servant of God was answered as it was given back to him, as it was restored, as it was brought to the surface. And he was able to take it back. Friends, as, as Steve asked at the communion table, have you trusted in this same God who has the power to save? Have you trusted in this God who the Christian would say has pulled me, has pulled you out of the miry clay and set your feet on the solid rock? Because if you haven't trusted him, you need to trust him today. Well, we'll see our second account this evening, and this is in verses 8 to 23. We've seen God's wonderful provision, firstly, and we see, secondly, God's protection in verses 8 to 23. As we have this account now that starts with us being introduced to the king of Syria, or it might say Aram in your Bible version. And the king of Syria is declared war on Israel. He's been sending out bands of soldiers, little raiding parties as, as part of his strategy of war to conquer Israel. It seems incredible, doesn't it, that he's doing this not very long after Naaman, his commander, or one of his commanders, has been healed by God of the leprosy that he had. You'd hope, perhaps, that if Naaman had been party to the king of Syria's plans, he may have spoken against them, but... Here it is, the king is making war on Israel and every single time this king, it says, sends out a raiding party, Israel seems to know about it and they're ready for it. Why? Because we're told in these opening verses that Elisha is told by God, 
God reveals to Elisha what is going on, what the king of Syria's plan is. And so Elisha is able to warn the king of Israel. Every single time the king of Syria plots an attack, God tells Elisha of it. Even the thoughts the king thinks in his own bedroom, we're told, are not secret. Then again, even the thoughts we think in our own bedroom are not hidden from God, are they? But part of the job of a prophet was to act as a watchman for the people, like Ezekiel was, a, was uh, called a watchman, wasn't he? And Elisha had this kind of a watchman role where he was able to tell people where the enemy would attack and how to defend themselves and to save themselves from the danger that they faced. But we need to be on our guard too, don't we? The devil will always attack, even and especially even when he thinks we're vulnerable. We may be under attack, even if we feel we've had spiritual success, even if things seem to be going well, we must be on our guard, mustn't we? We must be. All of us need to be on our guard. We must not be surprised if the devil tries to attack, but we need to know where to run if he does and what to do if he does. And these verses, I think, and I trust will help us as we think about these things. So imagine for a moment, if you're the king of Syria, whatever it is that you plan, whatever you try to do, however many soldiers you send out, Israel knows about it and they can take action so that nothing works of the king's plans. And so eventually the king of Syria is so frustrated and is so annoyed with all this that he's had enough. And he calls in um, his, his cohorts, his servants, and he says to them, there must be a traitor here. One of you must be for the king of Israel. You're leaking my plans. You're giving them away. Who is it? Well, one of his servants is bold enough and is confident enough to say to the king of Syria, it's not one of us, sir. It's not one of us. I'll tell you who it is. It's Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel what you say in your bedroom. It's quite bold of that servant, wasn't it? But he was right. Hmm, thinks the king. This is a problem. What am I going to do? Am I going to bow the knee to the God who I'm dealing with, who I can see and I have evidence is at work in this situation? No, says the king. I'm going to get Elisha. I'm going to take him out of the picture because he's the problem. He's spoiling my plans. I want to conquer Israel and he's in the way. Verse 13, go and find out where he is, says the king, so that I can capture him. So out go the spies. They track down Elisha to Dothan, to a place called Dothan. Don't know how they did that. Must have had quite a good scouting and spying network. My kids would have said, you need an app on your phone called Find My Prophet or something like that, but didn't have that then. They know where he is. He's at Dothan, a village just a bit north if we'd have gone back to the map at the start. So the king loads up an army probably quite a big army, horses, chariots, the lot, more than you'd really need just to capture one prophet. But he was mad and he wasn't taking any chances. Elisha had to be dealt with. 
and out they go. And don't miss the fact that they go by night and surround the village of Dothan, presumably to avoid being seen. Quite ironic, really. You know, they thought no one would see them coming. But all, after all, Elisha has proved to this king, still don't recognize, do they? That there is a God in heaven who sees all things and who knows all things. And that's a picture of what unconverted people are like. Don't recognize God and his power. And this king of Syria, having had proof after proof after proof, he just carries on in his rebellious ways. It's what people do. It's what the world out there does. They make God nothing. They ignore his words. They ignore his commands. Yet God knows everything and sees everything. And they go at night thinking they wouldn't be seen. How much sin takes place at night in the dark when we think no one is looking and can't see us? Well, in verse 15, we're introduced to Elisha's servant now. Presumably, he's Gehazi's replacement. And better than Gehazi, spiritually at least. And out he goes the next morning in verse 15. Early, it says, and as he goes out, this servant of Elisha, he's confronted with this scene, this probably quite terrifying scene where he sees the Syrian army camped out around the town or the, the village of Dothan, where it says city in verse 14. So he sees this army, this great army camped out. Oh, he says to Elisha, he goes and finds Elisha, my Lord, my master, at the end of verse 15, what are we going to do? Look at this army. We're done for. I wonder sometimes if as a, a young Christian or if a Christian or a Christian of many years standing, sometimes we see things that scare us, that we see the power of, of the world or the power of the enemy and we're scared. Maybe if somebody comes to you and says, this situation scares me, what are you going to say to them? How are you going to help them? Where are you going to point them to? Well, let's see what Elisha does. Because Elisha, does he shout at him? No. Does he tell him to pull himself together? No. Does he tell him he's weak and no use to him? No. Elisha knows something very important for us to realize that there is a spiritual battle going on out here and out there. There really are forces arrayed against us and this servant of his is scared of what he can see in front of him but what does Elisha say well in verse 16 he says don't fear God is with us he says don't fear because those who are for us are more than those who are with them those who are with us those who are for us are stronger than those who are against us it's like that verse we quoted at the start, isn't it? In 1 John chapter 4, that he that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, there is a force in this world, but remember and never forget how much greater and how much more powerful our God is than the forces of evil. And so in verse 17, Elisha prays and he prays, Lord, let this servant of mine open his eyes, please, Open his eyes that he may see. 
Elisha doesn't rebuke him. Instead, he prays for him to encourage him. And this man needs the word of God and this man needs to believe it. And then he can deal with the command not to be afraid. He needs to believe that really those who are with us are stronger and greater than those who are with them. It's comforting, isn't it, that he says us to the servant, that Elisha says, don't worry, those who are with us are more powerful. Elisha doesn't say, it's just me, you're on your own. He says, no, those who are with us are stronger than those who are with them, that Syrian army up there on the hill. Perhaps you think of the disciples when they were on the storm in the Sea of Galilee. Remember they were scared? Remember they thought that God didn't care, that Jesus didn't care about what was happening to them? But Jesus calmed that storm, didn't he, with a word. And they were safe with him. It says in Psalm 124 and verse 8, Our help is in the name of the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so as we have faith, we rely on God's word so that we may be certain of what we do not yet see. As it says in Hebrews chapter 11, which has a great theme of faith. We sang about it this morning. It says in there, and it reminds us about how Noah was warned about the things, some things not yet seen, about how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob received promises of things that would come to them in the future. But here is Elisha's servant. Suddenly his eyes are opened. God shows him this great sight and he sees the hills full of chariots and horses and fire all around Elisha. He sees this great picture of the hosts of heaven doing their work, protecting and defending God's servant, God's man. What do you make of that? Do you believe in God's power to protect his people? We thought about this a couple of weeks ago again, didn't we? About how God protects his people, about how God's angels are more powerful than the forces of darkness. Psalm 34 is helpful to us. Psalm 34, verse 4 to 8, where it says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Are you trusting in him? The commentators describe this, uh, this scene, if you like, as the ministering spirits and why not take the form of the very thing the enemy was using, these chariots and these horses? And then Elisha speaks again in verse 18 as the Syrian army now comes down towards the hill trying to take him. And Elisha prays, Lord, strike this people with blindness. It's quite a lot of irony running through this account, isn't there? Well, God does it. They can't see properly. The army comes down, but... 
they can't see and Elisha goes to them and he's the one they're looking for and he says, you're going the wrong way. I'll take you to the guy that you're looking for. And off he leads them in verse 19 and he leads them to Samaria. And then when they get there, Elisha prays again and he says, Lord, now open the eyes of these men so that they can see. And it happens. And they look and they realize probably with a feeling of dread that they're inside enemy territory, they're inside the city of Samaria. Imagine how they would feel, amazed perhaps, scared. And the king of Samaria, the king of Israel, sorry, comes out in verse 21 and he sees them and it's like, a, it's like he's been handed a great present. All these enemy soldiers delivered straight to him and he says to Elisha, what shall I do? Shall I kill them? And Elisha says, no. Verse 22, you shall not kill them. You haven't captured them in a battle. Would you kill them? Verse 22, with those you, who you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? No. Put food and water in front of them. And they get a great feast. They get fed. Get fed probably better than they could have expected. And they get sent back to Syria because they're messengers to the king, walking and seeing testimonies of what this God of Israel, who they were persecuting, has just done. Experiencing the power of the God of Israel, the God of Elisha. And, Eli and Israel is safe again for a time, protected by the wonderful power of God. While this blind servant sees and this army becomes blind, what an amazing God this is that we read about in these chapters. What amazing work our God does. We remember, don't we, that Jesus said in John chapter 9 and verse 39 that he had come so that the blind may see and so that those who see, who think they see, may become blind. He was speaking, wasn't he, to the Pharisees? I wonder tonight, is he speaking to you and to me well we've seen the power of God in provision and we've seen the power of God in protection and we've seen this picture of the unseen forces of God all around us and when the Israelites who were captive in Babylon reading these accounts many years later how encouraged must they have been that God was able to do these works, that God had done these works to this people years before. And how, as we read this many years later, we can be encouraged, can't we? That this is our God, that this is the work he does, that this is the God in whom our, our trust is. And this is the God who has saved us.